The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of The Veritas Show, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those of you who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where you shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight, we had to make a scheduled change. Last week, I announced that tonight's special guest would be Drs. J.J. and Desiree Hertak. That show has been postponed and will air next week. Questions of Life and the Keys of Enoch for 2010 and beyond. It is a great show, and I hope you don't miss it. Tonight's special guests are the founders of Project Camelot, Carrie Cassidy and Bill Ryan. Carrie and Bill will be with us shortly. To listen to all full shows, Head on over to our website and click on the subscribe button. For only $5.32 per month, you'll have access to all our past shows, 60 shows as of right now. Those are hundreds of hours available to you. You will also get access to our Manticore Forum, where people around the world discuss the shows and current world events, like your mainstream media would only dare to do. And to those of you who want a free subscription but cannot afford one, I have a few. I want to thank those of you who continue donating subscriptions. And as a reminder, for every subscription donated, 
I will match and give another one. So if you want to subscribe but cannot afford one, you need to write to me. Mail at veritasshow.com with a short and compelling essay and I will put you on the list. I will determine if you qualify. Now, another way to get a free subscription is by transcribing shows. I am in need of help to transcribe. So if you are 100% qualified to transcribe, go to our website and click on the free subscription link. Then write to us and the next show in line will be assigned to you. You do something for Veritas, we will do something for you. We'll give you a free subscription. I want to say hello and thank my friend Jason Moore from Urban Torque for providing tonight's bumper music. Jason's label, Urban Torque, has a plethora of talented artists, and every time I hear a song, I'm always impressed. Thanks again, Jason, and we'll continue airing some of your great music. Is it just me, or does the Haiti earthquake seem a bit strange? For days, I've been trying to avoid wearing my parapolitical hat, but I could not help it anymore. And yes, earthquakes do happen. That's always plausible deniability, if you ask me. Let's see, Haiti is the poorest country in the entire Western Hemisphere. A massive magnitude 7.0 earthquake shatters the capital, Port-au-Prince, affecting 3 million people, or one-third of the population. They say the casualty estimates are about 200,000, which, judging by the images I'm receiving, may be understated. Now, what I found strange was the fact that most of the important roads in the capital and the airport runways were not affected. Don't you think that a 7.0 magnitude earthquake would have an effect on the runways and roads? From 60 U.S. troops who were stationed there the day before the earthquake to 10,000. And that number will likely increase. In addition, the United Nations will have between 9 and 10,000 more troops. One cannot forget how the United States occupied Haiti from 1915 to 1935, so no wonder why other countries are wondering if this is humanitarian relief or invasion. Haiti has been in debt ever since they became independent from France in 1803. However, France charged them for war damages in today's equivalent of about $20 billion. So Haiti has been in debt since then, and with this earthquake, I don't know how much lower it can descend to as a country. Now, remember how the United States removed their democratically elected president, Jean Bertrand Aristide? I really don't spend that much time in news, but I think this is very important and it's it's imperative to discuss with you so that you get a clear picture of what may be happening here. Jean-Bertrand Aristide, pronouncing it the American way, was the elected president of Haiti. He was a supporter of a doctrine known as liberation theology, which was embraced by some Catholics throughout the world. The liberation theology basically was that the Catholic Church was called upon to help the citizens of the world gain their basic human rights and dignity, to support policies and programs that would guarantee all people food, shelter, education, medical care, and equal opportunity to earn a living. It was not sufficient for church members to direct the poor to pray. The church was called upon to actively get out in the streets and demand decent opportunity and lives for all people. 
I can't say that I disagree with this. Of course, the liberation theology was opposed by the multinational corporations who own and rule the United States and much of the world. They believe in slave labor, in people having no rights whatsoever, and corporations have control of everything. Now, Aristide had been the president of Haiti in the early 1990s, then was overthrown by some gang of thugs. President Bill Clinton, ironic that he will now be in charge of the, quote, charitable efforts, told Aristide that the U.S. would put him back into the presidency, but only if Aristide would agree to privatize Haiti's resources, turn over, sell off to corporations, control of all the state-run utilities, sell off all the assets to multinational corporations. Aristide made a partial agreement, but never carried through with the whole privatization of assets. Sounds a bit like what happened to Mossadegh in Iran in the 50s. Instead, by the time of the baby dog Bush regime, Aristide was promoting the liberation theology and advocating for an end to the poverty of his country. Among other things, he was publicly demanding that France pay reparations to Haiti for all the assets that France stole while Haiti was a colony and thereafter. Finally, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney decided to stage a phony coup in Haiti, overthrow Aristide and put in a U.S.-supported puppet to take his place. That's René Preval. In 2004, the U.S. government formed a mercenary squad, trained and armed them, and set about creating chaos throughout Haiti by having these mercenaries roam through poor neighborhoods which supported Aristide, the stronghold of the Aristide-supporting political party named Lavalas, and murdering the Aristide supporters. Soon, Haiti descended into chaos, and the U.S. used that as an opportunity to send in the Marines, kidnap Aristide, and forcibly remove him from office and from the country. After that, U.N. security forces remained in control of the country and, among other things, attempted to arrest and or murdered the major leaders of the Lavalas political party, the supporters of Aristide. The coup was directed by George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. The quote-unquote new president was approved by them. The new president did not support liberation theology. The Haitian supporters of Aristide have continued to demand that he be allowed to return to his rightful position as president of Haiti. This kidnapping in the night and forcible removal from the country is exactly the same thing that the U.S. recently did to the president of Honduras. I will be monitoring this very closely, but since Guantanamo is allegedly closing, what a great place to monitor all shipments that go from Venezuela to Cuba. Oh, and a couple of days later, after the earthquake, another one rocks Venezuela, and just a couple of days ago, Guatemala and Argentina get hit with a magnitude 5.0. I'll keep watching this, and we'll continue to provide updates at the Manticore Forum. And now, get ready to experience a very intimate conversation with the founders of Project Camelot. Why do some people get motivated to step out of the box and take the initiative to continue where others left off? Are you tired of waiting for those in control to release information that may catapult us to where we should be? I am. That is why Project Camelot and Veritas exist, so we can find the truth our way. Kerry Cassidy and Bill Ryan are coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere.
This is Dr. Stephen Greer, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Project Camelot is composed by Carrie Lynn Cassidy and Bill Ryan. Carrie has a bachelor's degree in English with graduate work in sociology, a master's in business administration degree from the UCLA Anderson Graduate School of Management, and was competitively selected to attend a year of film school at the UCLA Extension Short Fiction Film Program as one of their first hyphenates, a writer, director, producer. After 19 years in Hollywood, working for major studios and independent production companies in production, development, and new media, she has written a number of screenplays, acquired the movie rights to The Wingmaker's Story in 2003, and started work on her own UFO documentary in 2005. Project Camelot's co-founder, Bill Ryan, has a bachelor's degree in mathematics with physics and psychology. Prior to co-founding Project Camelot, Bill had 27 years of experience as a management consultant specializing in personal and team development, leadership training, and executive coaching. In November 2005, he inaugurated the Project Serpo website, the report of an alleged disclosure in stages of a U.S. alien exchange program claimed to have taken place over 40 years ago. While he had been interested in UFOs, free energy research, and alternative medicine for over 30 years, his first contact with the UFO community at large occurred after establishing the SERPA website. And today, I am privileged to have with me the founders of a movement that in such a short time has awakened millions around the world. From Project Camelot, Carrie Cassidy and Bill Ryan. Hello, Carrie and Bill. Welcome and thank you for being on Veritas. How are you? Hi there. We're very well, happy to be here. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Mel. Thanks so much for having us on your show. This is going to be a lot of fun. It's my pleasure. Well, first of all, let me just say that technology is something that we should never take for granted. We, we are in three different locations and in different continents, and yet we are talking as if we were right here next to each other. Carrie and Bill, I know sometimes it's awkward to be sitting on the other side of the microphone. I think you've done a few of these. Anyway, to set the expectations, I want this show to be a biography of Project Camelot, the who, what, when, where. I really don't think there is anyone around the world listening who may not know who you are, but in the rare event, there are a few. I want to explore a bit of the who of Carrie and Bill and how the two of you converge. Let's start with, with you, Carrie. Give us a bit of your background and how you and Bill got together, how you converged to create Project Camelot. Uh, well, actually, uh, I guess you'd say that um, it was uh, <laughs> meant to be because we, we actually have had uh, magical things happen uh, that helped us along and helped us move very, very quickly into a sphere that that previous to um, getting together, we, we really were on the periphery. And, um, and that has all changed, as you know. So um, I guess at this moment, we're getting something like a million visitors um, a month, maybe even more. I, mm -hmm. I don't even know exactly. But at any rate, um, the way we met was I, I was a frustrated filmmaker. I'd been trying to make movies in Hollywood um, as an independent producer, pitching them, writing uh, screenplays, actually sci-fi based screenplays. So I was doing a tremendous amount of investigation on the web. Um, and I had a background in, uh, I guess you might say, the occult and in, um, in, in basically Eastern philosophy. So I, I was doing that. And at the same time, I was reaching a glass ceiling. 
And I basically decided to pick up a, uh, you know, a consumer grade camcorder and go out and just shoot my own documentary. Uh, I started going to conferences and interviewing the speakers to see if they had themselves had experiences, have if they'd seen a UFO, that sort of thing. And um, to my surprise, everyone was more than willing to talk to me. And it just ended up to be a lot of fun. And one of the people that I interviewed at that time was Bill Ryan, who is uh, my partner in Camelot, uh-huh. my partner in crime, so to speak here. Right. And um, he was at that time the webmaster for the Serpo uh, project. And um, many people will be familiar with serpo.org, I think is the URL, um, or projectserpo.org. At any rate, Bill can tell you more about that. But I did a brief interview with him. We sort of hit it off. Uh, We went to dinner. He uh, then went back to England, where he was based at the time. And uh, then we ended up connecting and going to some of the power places in England, one of which was Tintagel, the home of King Arthur. And uh, that was actually where we came up with the idea for Project Camelot in a brief discussion saying to each other, well, we both have a fascination with this area. How can we put our skill sets together and how can we bring, um, you know, disclosure and truth to the world? And I was a, you know, a videographer, obviously, and um, Bill was a writer and uh, we put our writing skills together as well as um, our love of travel. And uh, decided to go out and, and, you know, reveal the truth to people. And we decided to also make it free. <laughs> great, great, Bill. And uh, as she said, uh, as Carrie said, Serpo is how I got to know you. Give us a bit of your background. And, and, and how did you get pulled to Serpo? How, what was your involvement there from the beginning? That's a great question. And it's one that many people ask. And it's something that I even have to kind of... Um, scratch my head to remember because it feels like such a long time ago. But essentially, I was just one of many spectators who happened to be on uh, an email UFO newsgroup list that was being uh, authored by Victor Martinez. The wizard, sure. uh, (laughs) That's right, Victor the wizard. (laughs) That's a joke he tells against himself. Victor Martinez, who is a Los Angeles-based school teacher, and a, a sort of part-time unpaid UFO nut at the same time. And out of the blue, he started getting anonymous messages from somebody purporting to be a DIA source, a Defense Intelligence Agency source, telling this extraordinary story about a U.S. Uh, alien exchange program that happened back in the 1960s and 70s. And there was a huge amount of discussion that happened in a very short space of time as these anonymous messages started to tumble in to Victor's email. And he dutifully just sent everything along to his own email list. And I was just one of those people that at that time was about 150 people just kind of watching this. And it was Bill Hamilton, who you will know and recognize, um, very much a veteran of the scene, who suggested to Victor's group that what this needed was a website for all of this information to be archived because it needed to be studied, it needed to be analyzed. A lot of people were quite interested in it in those early stages. And I didn't have anything better to do. So I just stuck my hand up as it were in the audience and say, hey, I can do that. I'm willing to build a website, this sounds interesting. And everybody said, well, okay then, why not? Um, I got a bunch of interesting 
uh, emails from people who I soon after realized were in the intelligence community asking me, who are you? We don't know who you are. This is an unknown name. They were gently checking me out, I subsequently realized. But basically, I was just a webmaster, and it was a lot of fun. And one of the reasons why Kerry interviewed me, which was about six months after all this happened, I was slated to speak at the Laughlin UFO conference at the end of, actually, it wasn't six months later, it was only three months later, at the end of February 2006, was because all of these messages coming in were anonymous. Victor didn't want to speak to anybody on record. He didn't want to do any interviews. He didn't want to do any public speaking. And the only person that anyone could talk to or ask questions about all of this was me. And I was just a webmaster, trying to be as intellectually honest as I possibly could do. I rapidly got tangled up in this ridiculous story that started to get more and more ridiculous as it was getting sabotaged from the inside. And all of this is a radio interview on its own. I mean, I could talk about it for hours. But basically, Kerry interviewed me because she didn't have anyone else to talk to her about this. SOPA was all the rage. And what was really quite funny, Kerry will tell you that she was really quite skeptical. She, she, she was doing this rather grudgingly, talking to this guy who was only the webmaster, and she was just doing her duty because she wanted to be a UFO investigator with a camera in her hand. Sure. So the rest of the story is best told by Kerry. <laughs> so you you want to take it from there? And by the way, it, it's been almost what uh, four years, which seems like yesterday since you started Serpent, since Camelot started. But whatever happened to the story of Serpo? Oh my goodness! It faded out basically as the email releases became ever more ridiculous. It was shunned by, and rightly so, I need to say, by every reputable investigate in the UFO community because it was just too contaminated. It was too contaminated. Um, it had the fingerprints of every intelligence agency you could think of. Um, Rick Doty was involved, which although we spoke with him privately and we were both convinced that he didn't know everything that was going on. He knew some of what was going on, but he certainly didn't know everything that was going on. And he certainly wasn't running the show. And we subsequently had a number of very interesting encounters, including um, going to knock on the door of somebody who we had been told was one of the reserve astronauts who didn't get to go. He was like one of these reserves who sat on the bench in a baseball game. He didn't get to go, but he was standing by. And we went and met this guy, or at least we tried to meet this guy, and all kinds of weird things happened. I mean, there was enough circumstantial evidence knocking around and this really does make a separate radio program. And I'd be happy to do that if ever you wanted to, because it's a fascinating story. But we became convinced that an exchange program really had happened. And if you if you step back and you look at it, look at it all, once contact had been established and once communication had been established and once the visitors were here, which is something that most UFO investigators acknowledge readily is the case, then the next logical step is that if they're coming here, then they invite us over there to have a look at their planet. There's no reason why this wouldn't have happened. It's not a big step to take, but it's a kind of big emotional step to take, the very fact that that um, human beings might actually have ended up leaving the solar system, going to another star system. And um, Linda Howe and Bill Hamilton uh, both had independent um, witness testimony before SOPA was released that an exchange program like this had occurred. But what they had each 
been told was that there weren't 12 people who went, there were three. Uh, one of them died, one of them went insane, and only one of them returned intact. And the whole thing was covered up because as a mission, it was a bit of a disaster. We don't know what else has happened. We heard from another witness that several of these exchange programs had taken place, and there's no logical reason why not. But the SOPO story itself was highly contaminated. And um, I stepped out of it after about um, a year and a half. I handed over the website to somebody else. But the connection with Camelot, besides the fact that I was interviewed by Carriers as one of her witnesses, so to speak, was because I had a huge amount of email traffic in those early days because I came over, I think probably because of my naivety and my English accent and all kinds of other stuff, people saw me as an honest broker and they saw me as trying to represent the truth as a SERPA webmaster in the best way that I could. I was just trying to be intellectually honest. I was just trying to report this information that was coming through and trying to be intelligent about it and trying to be measured about it. And then people would write to me with their own stories, just like they write to us at Camelot now. And I'm sure people write to you, Mel, behind the scenes with incredible stuff. And you think, my God, what do I do with this email? This person is telling me they had this incredible experience. What do I do with this? You know, And I was starting to collect all these things. And one of the things which I started to realize by the time Kerry and I connected in uh, April 2006 was that there was an enormous number of people out there who had stories, who were very nervous, they didn't know what to do about it, they didn't want to go to the Disclosure Project for any particular reason, they didn't want to go to, to other places, maybe because they were worried about, uh, I don't know what they were worried about, but they seemed to trust me at that time. And of course, people make their own decisions for their own good reasons about who to trust, and people who write to you must feel that they trust you. And so the message here is that there is this this huge sort of iceberg, as it were, meaning there's so much below the waterline that isn't immediately visible, of people with experiences who just haven't told their story yet, some of them being significant experiences which they've been worried about telling because they signed some kind of a secrecy agreement, non-disclosure agreement many, many years ago. And now they're starting to worry, you know, starting to think, well, maybe it's safe to tell the story now and so on and so forth. And the fact that I'd collected some of those in my uh, job as a SERPA webmaster and then brought those into Camelot was one of the things that inspired us because we thought there's this huge reservoir of untapped testimony out there. And the other aspect of this was because we had both been inspired by Dr. Stephen Greer and the Disclosure Project way back in uh, May 2001, I think it was, when he did his Washington press conference. And like many others, we had been waiting. It's like, okay, this is great. You know, what's going to happen now? You know, what's the next conference going to be? When is he going to testify before, uh, before Congress? When are these videos going to be out and all the transcripts of all this wonderful testimony of these 400 brave witnesses and so on and so forth, and not much seemed to be happening. And so another motivation for us doing what we were doing was because with Kerry's little consumer-grade camcorder, we just thought, well, we should try and do something, because at least while we're waiting for the Disclosure Project to come up with the goods, let's just do our own thing, because this is a team effort, and we all have to do what we possibly can do. And that was one of the motivations behind you know, our starting to do this whole thing. We were trying to be a sort of barefoot disclosure project of our own. And as Kerry said, we decided that we just wouldn't 
charge for anything that we were doing. At that time, we didn't have any costs anyway. And we just thought, well, we can't charge for this information. We don't own this information. This isn't ours to sell, you know. And the whole thing became a sort of, it was an idealistic uh, project that was really founded upon what we felt the ideals of King Arthur were, you you know, um, about the reference to the round table and everyone being equal and there's no kind of monarch at the head of the table and all this kind of stuff. I'm talking too much, Mel. No, I hear you want to break in with a question. That's okay, but uh, just one last thing about uh, Serpo, because I don't want to take over the whole show. We we could do one or two shows on Serpo alone, but whenever I think Serpo, I think of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and the similarities between the the, uh, exchange program. But also, do you think and this question is basically for both of you. You think that the information got contaminated as it was being provided to you or the people who were commenting, perhaps from the intelligence apparatus trying to discredit it, and that's why it faded away. In other words, do you think the story was real or was it a planted disinformation tactic? I think the story started off as being fairly real, although it did contain disinformation as plausible deniability, but they were actually trying to get the word out, possibly as some kind of a test as well. And then it got sabotaged, I believe, from within the intelligence agencies itself. They started to sabotage it from the inside. And there were a number of indicators that the person who was writing the releases, that that changed. There was some kind of a power struggle behind the scenes. We spoke to Rick Doty off record. He didn't know what was going on. He was fed up with the whole thing. He said to us very memorably, he said, if I was in charge of this disclosure, he said it would be a class act. He said, it's just a mess. And um, and it was. He was right. It was a mess. And Rick basically washed his hands of the whole thing after about six months. He didn't want anything more to do with it. And it got finally, it got ultimately contaminated when some photographs were promised and the photographs were uh, appeared. They were sent on a CD to Victor Martinez and they turned out to be fakes. And that was the end of that. You know. I, I remember. Uh, and, and so, I mean, after that, it's no point trying to push that water uphill because it, 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 it's just not going to work anymore. No one would believe it. And what's interesting to me, because something... I now feel I understand quite well, and you have probably come to understand, I'd be interested in your own personal view, is that an awful lot of what happens in the UFO community, it's not just about sort of hard evidence presented before the court. An awful lot of it is PR. An awful lot of it is how things are presented, how things go down in the court of public opinion. If a story is, 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 is fatally wounded, in the public debate, then it just won't go any further. And it's almost like it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It's just not being bought. And therefore, you just have to drop it and do something else. Um, And that's something which I realized after a little while is that public relations, and I really don't want to sound like a marketing executive, because I promise you I'm not, and I don't like to think that way. But PR is a huge part of the battle. You know, and if you've got a great story and it's presented badly or you come over like some kind of a jerk or you're angry or you're shooting other people down or whatever, then you know what? It's not going to go anywhere because nobody wants to listen to you. Nobody wants to hear your story. They don't like you and they don't like what you're saying. And that's the problem. You have to use discernment because sometimes you have a great story that has, it has factual data behind it. 
but there's a debunker that comes along and completely taints it to the point where people believe it, and all of a sudden, you're discredited by the court of public opinion, when in fact, you may have a great story behind you. That's exactly right. And um, this is something that you may want to get on to talk about. And I think I've been taking up too much time here, because I'd love to hear from Kerry about this. And this is about what do we do at Camelot to differentiate between what stories are worth per- pursuing, which ones aren't, what witnesses are worth um, uh, spotlighting in terms of um, giving publicity to their stories, and which ones are dangerous to. When do we take the risk, especially if they are controversial, let's say, when do we decide that something just isn't worthwhile publicizing because we're not sufficiently confident, it's not easy to make those decisions. And um, lots of people, I think especially people who haven't been following this area for all of, for all that long, fall into the very understandable mistake of thinking that if we're giving airtime to somebody with a story, we are therefore supporting it, promoting it, trying to urge people to believe it. You must have found this yourself when you have a controversial guest who's massively entertaining and then people write to you and saying, how can you believe all this stuff? And you're saying, wait a minute, I never said I believed it. I said it's worth listening to, right? You know what I mean? As an example, and and the next question I want Carrie to to answer, but as an example, I had, uh, just because I have a guest on the show doesn't mean that I agree or I believe what they're saying. A few weeks ago, I had uh, Dr. David Jacobs, who has a very different opinion of what my personal opinion is, but I'm not here to give my opinion just to present the facts. And of course, I received a barrage of email saying, how in the world can you believe that the government has nothing to do with the secrecy, da-da-da-da-da. So I know exactly where you're coming from. But the next question is for, for, let's have Carrie answer it, just to put the rumors to rest right at the beginning of the program, in case they are rumors. You both, in my opinion, complement each other and create great synergy. However, I hear that there is a possibility that the two of you may go separate ways. Is this true? (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, no. I mean, insofar as we are expanding Camelot, so that may be where the rumor is coming from. Uh, But basically, what we're doing is we are going to be sort of because Bill's located mainly in Europe and I'm mainly in the U.S., um, and I'm going to be sort of um, working on, as, as most people will know, I have an entertainment background. And um, so I'm going to be exploring that a bit more in the future. Um, I also have some areas that I want to go into that are not, you know, Bill has more of a science background. So I have more of a sort of esoteric background, I guess you might say, or metaphysical. Um, So I'm going to be doing some interviews that have more to do with uh, delving into, you might say, channeled information, information that you can't prove that isn't um, easy to uh, verify and so on and so forth. Uh, So that's one of the aspects of of the expansion that we'll be doing. Um, The other thing is simply logistics. It's very expensive to travel for for, to do interviews. And um, at this moment, we've been doing a lot of audio interviews. I think people will have noticed that a lot less video. that's just a sign of the times. I'm hoping that more money will come in. As a matter of fact, I, I am planning to go over to Europe uh, in the near future to to do some interviews. And and so anyone listening to the show, anyone who wants to con- contribute to uh, to our cause, uh, it, it's always uh, very helpful 
if we can get um, garner enough money to travel. But again, that's that's been a, a huge uh, stumbling block, in the, especially in the past year. Initially, uh, Project Camelot was financed by, um, in part by uh, my mother passed away and I had an, a small inheritance. So for about two years, we were able to finance ourselves that way and also using a bit of uh, Bill's money from, uh, he was an executive team uh, building um, uh, trainer, I guess you'd call him, uh, or consultant. And uh, so he had some finances there. And then, um, as as fate would have it, his mother passed away, and we had a small bit of money uh, to continue. And then we basically just started asking people for donations. And, and we actually didn't know what direction to go because we didn't want to charge for the interviews. That was really key. Um, and so we've actually been successful with that for the past year or actually for the past two years, I think we've been receiving donations. And and that's been hugely, um, you know, basically keeping us alive, I guess, for all intents and purposes. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would like to put that rumor to rest, but at the same time, we are going to create what we call um, a Project Camelot. It's going to still be, you know, the Project Camelot URL, but it'll be sort of like more of a portal in the sense that we're going to branch out, Bill's going to emphasize, I think, um, you know, the Project Avalon site, which has been really neglected. I mean, the way things are is that we are so um, popular. We we have, um, you know, and I, I don't mean to say that in an egotistical sense, but just that we have so much coming at us simultaneously that for us to, um, we kind of have to split and emphasize our different um, sort of areas of expertise, if you will. So that's basically what we're going to do. And uh, we're definitely staying together. We're still working on the mission. Uh, we'll be doing joint interviews from time to time. And, um, you know, when our finances permit that and when the circumstances allow for that, we'll be doing conferences. Um, I'll be starting sort of a production company to, to uh, follow up some of the things I want to do and also to to work on creating conferences that both of us will be speaking at. So, you know, it's always going to be the Camelot mission, basically, for both of us, because we're really, really dedicated to this. And by the way, my condolences for the loss of uh, both of your mothers. But uh, it, what you said is so true, that sometimes you both have attributes that you would, would like to focus on. So if I read between the lines, you're going to be doing some of the say, esoteric, for example, interviews on your own, and Bill will be doing some of this on his own, but still will be all in the melting pot we call Project Hamlet. Is that correct? That's correct. And, um, and, and, and it's actually a very, it's great, because as we've moved into this, uh, this area, we have both, uh, I guess you might say, grown a lot. Um, both of us have experienced uh, amazing stuff, and we have the most amazing witnesses. I mean, I just can't, if someone hasn't had a chance to listen to some of the interviews, I just highly, highly recommend them. I know I'm prejudiced, <laughs> but, um, but I do want to say that, you know, that, that there's just some jewels of information there. And um, even to get back to the Serpo situation, I think that what we've got there is 
a um, an alien exchange program, and there were lots of them, and there have been ongoing exchanges with ETs. Many ETs are here working with our government. This is a known fact. Um, this can be documented. We have countless witnesses that document this information. Um, and then on top of it, you know, uh, there is a lot of disinfo that came out in Serpo, and there's a lot of disinfo in general out there. And to get back to a question Bill was talking about, um, which is how do we vet our witnesses? Because that's an important aspect to what we do. And one of the ways is obviously um, by looking at any you know credentials, paperwork they may have, and so on and so forth. Um, but that's not, you know, those things can be faked. As, as anyone who's in this sector knows. And so that's really not a way to uh, verify. Uh, another way is also to use um, basically what I call kind of triangulation, which is to take the information itself and find out whether or not you get verification from, from completely unrelated sources. If you get that, then things begin to look, they begin to tilt on the side of uh possible verification for the source being legitimate. There are other things that can happen. Um, we do have behind the scenes, um, a lot of our witnesses and others, sources that people don't know, have never met, have never heard of, behind the scenes do help and do consult with us to lend their expertise. There, there are ways in terms of um, writing style, in terms of uh, long dialogues. We will, I mean, for example, with Henry Deacon, we spent Oh, months and months with in dialogues, meeting in face to face, going to you know outside the place of work, meeting other people that were related to him that knew of, of what he was involved in. Um, there we we had uh, a lot a lot of verification in, in the case of Henry Deacon, and he's one of the most um, prolific and outrageous witnesses you might say that we have. Um, there are others, and and there are there are military questions that can be asked. Uh, code names, things where where people, if they don't, if they're lying about what they say they know, um, easy triggers, in other words, to catch somebody in a lie. And I have to say that we've become very good at this. <laughs> um, we, I believe, I believe that we've, uh, we've actually, it's one of the reasons I think we're so successful is it's true. We come from completely different angles, Bill, from a science-based uh, paradigm and me from, as I said, the sort of occult, more metaphysical side of things. But that complements itself such that we're able to really vet a given witness um, from both angles. And then, as I said, with, with uh, other consultants helping us and so on and so forth. So, um, so it's a fascinating process. And, and the lastly, I have to say that we use um, intuition or psychic ability. And both of us have that. Uh, both of us are very aware of it. Um, and I would emphasize that more than Bill would, but I, I have to say that it's it's actually proven itself to be quite correct in the past. Well, what you said is so important, and we have to say we are not perfect. We are all human beings, and for example, have you ever interviewed anyone, and this has happened to me, I must admit, have you ever interviewed anyone and then realized later after airing the interview that perhaps you made a mistake? You don't have to name names, but I'm sure you have gone through that we do our research perhaps read someone's book but then find out a thing or two later and then it's too late has that happened to you yes absolutely um in fact we have a few of those uh sometimes I, i'm not going to name a name but we have one person please who, don't yeah 
who is who is actually a wonderful, brilliant guy, and um, we interviewed him, and we decided that what he was saying was basically a party line. And for all intents and purposes, he was never leaving that party line, which was our initial hope. And therefore, we absolutely decided, both of us, there was no, you know, we didn't have any um, disagreements about this situation. We really decided that we would not release that interview because there was absolutely nothing new to be said there, you know, and um, it was a disappointment in that way. Um, perfectly nice guy, very well-meaning, uh, you know, and, and he became annoyed with us. But but we were in the situation where our, our search is for the truth. Our search is to show the big picture as much as possible to reveal that to people. Um, so if, if somebody does not step up to the plate, so to speak, and push the envelope, it's not really worth our time. I mean, I have to be honest about that. Absolutely. And that has happened to me, and I also won't name names, but I'm sure the audience can figure out who I'm referring to. You bring somebody who states that has so much information to share, you bring them to the plate, and then all of a sudden, nothing new comes out. And that is so frustrating after you air the show. Well, uh, in radio, I mean, see, now I'm doing a radio show myself. I, I guess maybe you're aware of that. And, yes. and because it's an, an hour that Bill is is basically asleep in, in Switzerland, we're not putting him through that, that um, the ringer there. But uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun. In fact, I'm going to have Michael Tellinger on today, um, tonight at 7 p.m. Pacific time. I'll just give that Camelot radio a, a bit of a plug here since you're giving me the entree. Um, sure. But I, I totally understand what you're saying. Actually, in radio, because it's live, you, you don't really have that privilege so much, right? Right. That, that's correct. <laughs> and now, Veritas is highly composed of our audience, and we are simply a bridge between you and the audience. So a lot of the questions that I'll be asking you tonight are from members of the audience who also follow your work and, not surprisingly, are scattered all over the world. First question. How and I believe uh, Bill started talking about this and you. What is the criteria in in this vast sea of possible whistleblowers and witnesses? Sometimes it's difficult with the limited amount of time that you may have to start choosing and picking the most relevant ones. What is the criteria you use before you go out there and interview people? Who who wants to go next? Basically, okay, Bill. Why don't you give that a shot? Since all I'm right, talking. Bill. Uh, yeah, it's a good. It's a good question. Um, we, we started off basically by being grateful that anyone would talk to us at all. You know, we thought, wow, this is incredible. Somebody's willing to talk to us. This is amazing. And um, as time has gone on, we became um, more and more focused on people who might be able to say something uh, intelligent, useful, and informative about what the future was holding. First of all, our view is more retrospective. Um, we were looking at, at um, people who told stories about things that had happened in the past, solid, uh, solid gold witnesses like Dan Sherman, who had a wonderful story that even he didn't understand fully. He didn't know what to make of it. It wasn't future focused. It was got something to do with his having been recruited to be a telepath. Um, and he went through this strange training program and so on and so forth. And he wrote this little book called Above Black, which is only about a quarter of an inch thick or something. It's a little book because he doesn't have a great story. I mean, I mean, it's a great story, but he, but he doesn't have a big story. 
And we were pleased to talk to Dan. We were pleased to talk with a bunch of other people. And then we started to see, wait, wait a minute, you know, all this stuff is really focused on what's going to be happening in the next few years. Where are we all headed for as the human race? If these big secrets are being kept from us all, why is that? And we started to put this mosaic together of this big picture. To a certain degree, we were paying catch up because people who'd been in this area for many, many years beforehand already had quite a lot of this big picture scoped out, I think. But fairly quickly, after about a year or so, we started to think, well, why are they building these underground bases? What is going to be happening um, in 2012, we started talking about 2012 in about 2007, didn't we? Um, 2007, when we started to realize, actually, interestingly enough, it was connected with Dan Sherman's story because he was being trained as a telepath. When he asked his own uh, superior in the army at that time why it was he was doing this, he was simply told that there was. He was being trained for a time in which all electronic communications would be rendered useless. And that's enough to 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 focus one's attention. And so this is a roundabout way of saying that now we tend to to focus our attention on witnesses who can speak to what is it that we might be encountering in the future? What is it that we're not being told? What do they know? Where might we be going? And of course, this is one of the reasons why in the last couple of years, Kerry has become more interested in channeled information, because that's one source of answers for what might possibly be happening in the future. Um, I'd like to ask Kerry to give her version of an answer to that question, because I don't even know whether it's going to be the same answer as mine. And before you give me the answer, Kerry, and I think it's important to, to interview people who can give you relevant information, but also how we could use that knowledge to put it in practical terms. As I said at the beginning of the show, how beautiful is that we have this technology that can actually connect the three of us, even though we're in different parts of the world. And if one day we wake up in the morning and turn on, turn the good old light switch on and it's not on and then come out of the, to the street and no lights are working, then what? But yeah, give us your answer about that also, Carrie. Um. Okay, I, I'm not sure. What is the question? In other words, you're saying that if we walk out into the street, the lights aren't on. No, no, I was but, just... But what's the implied question? Then? I was just uh, stating the fact that what Bill said, that, you know, interviewing people who may say that in the future, we our communication may not be there. But the original question was, what criteria do you use to bring people who are relevant these days to your Camelot interviews? That was the question. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, in in answer to that, I think, you know, it's a funny process because I have to say, on the one hand, we use our intuition uh, in, and do, we're constantly researchers ourselves. So uh, we're familiar with the playing field, but we also occasionally get sent suggestions of people to interview that, that we think to ourselves, yeah, why don't we do that? Um, because it also has to do with pieces of the puzzle. In other words, there are 20 million people out there that are more that have been uh, abducted, let's say. So a story about abduction is is not going to be news, in essence. Um, what we're looking for is um, that piece of the puzzle that hasn't been adequately um, talked about 
basically, that hasn't, you know, it's news that hasn't really broken, or it's been so controversial, like in the case of uh, Dan Burish originally, uh, we want to bring some clarity to the situation. We believe that because of the way we conduct the interviews that we are able to get to the truth of the matter, um, we're able to set up sort of a magic circle in which the witness tends to feel very safe very um, comfortable. We are able to get revelations of from people even that ha- are well known on the circuit that have been interviewed by us and are saying things they've never said before. Uh, one of the examples for that would be Bob Dean. Actually, he broke into tears at one point and revealed his own um, encounters, uh, you know, with ETs. Uh, I, I think that that was a very amazing moment, but he felt so comfortable and so sort of um, among friends, I guess you might say, that, that that he was in a place where he wanted to reveal some information he had not before. He did the same thing when he, he revealed the information about Nibiru on another interview. Um, we have people coming back to us over and over again. That's an interesting dynamic in, in and of itself. Once they do an interview with us, they often contact us again and want to do another one. Uh, Jordan Maxwell is an example. He he did an interview with Camelot for a long, long time. I mean, I think it was years I tried to get Jordan to do an interview with us. Um, he was very reclusive for a couple of years. He was stepping back. And then all of a sudden he decided to step forward. Has, he has gone um, a little bit more into the limelight lately. Uh, as a result of our interview in part, I think. But he's also willing to do another interview. And I mean, that's really exciting when when we have such a um, a great sort of rapport with the witness where they want to come, come forward again and talk to us some more. Um, but in terms of deciding who to interview, again, it's got to be another piece of the puzzle. It needs to push the envelope it needs to be something that's going to be thought-provoking. It shouldn't be something that's just obvious. Um, it shouldn't just be something that's out there where, where there's a million interviews of the same thing. Yes. Um, and we also don't tend to go after people that have already been on the circuit for a very long time unless there's an area that they touch on that we feel that is special, that needs more delving into, and that sort of thing. I remember a couple of years ago, and, and this this story touched me because at the time he, he and his wife were having a, a, a baby, and I'm talking about Mr. X. Remember that interview when he died all of a sudden of a heart attack? Do you ever looked into this? Did you ever find out what happened? Uh, well, we, we do believe that it's very likely. I mean, you know, I hope his, his wife is not listening to this. I'll say that as a caveat. Sure. Uh, we do believe that it's possible that he was targeted. Uh, the way that he died was very unexpected. He was a relatively young man, uh, I believe in his 40s. He had a new baby. He had, he had a loving wife. We'd met both of them. Um, you know, we'd, we'd met him and, and his wife in person. Um, he tried to keep her kind of sheltered from the circuit that he was involved in. Uh, he was a genuine, wonderful guy. Um, he, as, to my knowledge, he did not have any health problems. Uh, he simply was out Christmas shopping. Uh, I think this is a year ago now, and he complained of not feeling well. Um, they went home at about three o'clock in the morning. He he was uh, very unwell, and his wife decided to take him to the emergency room of the hospital. Um, and by twelve noon the next day, he w- he had passed on. 
Um, so we, I, we have not been in touch, um, and heard, you know, the autopsy if there was one and so on and so forth. Uh, but all I have to say is that the powers that be have ways to eliminate people. Um, I do know that secretly he was planning to possibly go out under his own name, um, on coast to coast. Um, that was something he had shared with us a month or two before, um, in private, uh, you know, you could say that it was just serendipity, it was just a coincidence, or you could say it was a targeted hit. Um, it'd be much better if it were not a targeted hit, obviously. Um, unfortunately, I think that it that it's quite possible that it was. I am willing to bet that in the years that you have been doing this, and Bill, with your rep- repository of emails that you've received, that sometimes, and I get those emails all the time, and even talk to the people, is it difficult sometimes to determine if you should have somebody come forward because you may put themselves in danger or you may put yourself in danger? And I remember during your interview with that Dr. Peterson that, you, that all of you talked about this. Has that happened to you? When do you stop and say, I'm not going to cross the line this time? Let me jump in there yes. and start something that Kerry can probably finish. Um, it's safer if you've told your story. It's safer out in the open. What isn't safe is if you start hinting that that you've got a story but you haven't told it all and you're hiding behind a pseudonym and that's the best way that somebody can knock you off the road and no one will ever know who you were and no one will ever know whether it was real or not because you never put your face on camera. We really do believe that the best place to hide is out in the open. And so what we What we often say to somebody, if they're coming to us with a story that that feels hot, feels real, the person feels sincere, we say to them, look, you have to make this decision for yourself, but you will be safer if you come right up, right out under your own name, with your own face on camera so that people can look into your eyes and that will protect you. And um, we recommend that to our witnesses in as much as that's the policy that seems to have worked for ourselves. Because we're not trying to hide, if anyone tried to take us out, it would be very, very obvious. If anyone tries to take um, one of our witnesses out, it will be very, very obvious as well, because because anyone now is in the spotlight um, once they come forward. And the spotlight is the safest place to be. Things don't happen in the spotlight. Things tend to happen in the dark shadows. That's the idea. Um, that's my best response to that one. Would you agree, Kerry? Yeah, absolutely. I have to say that coming, you know, the best place to hide is out in the open. I certainly agree with that. Obviously, um, that is kind of our Camelot motto. Um, and and actually, uh, possibly could have even, I mean, you could speculate it could have saved Mr. X's life. Um, ultimately, yes, if you come out partway, if you just sort of step out briefly or you come out of an under-assumed name, uh, if they want to eliminate you, they, they can do so. Now, I think we are at a juncture where that is not so much being um, being the choice of the powers that be. I think we are now reaching what some call critical mass, where the awakened, the number of people awakened on the planet is enough. And the revelations are actually coming on a daily basis now to where people are not going to be fooled uh, so much. So that whistleblowers are, are basically um, 
they, they, they're in good number. In other words, they, they are being supported out there more than ever before. And I think there's less, much less likely uh, a chance that they will be uh, terminated, so to speak. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be targeted electromagnetically, um, you know, by what I would say is uh, reptilian or uh, gray influence. In, in other words, service to self negative ET influence. Um, this may happen. Uh, you know, and then there's always the occult and, and the, the way that the Illuminati operate in secret. Uh, so there are you become a target. Um, this can happen when you become a public person. But again, you are you are also safer because you will be um, basically working on the side of good. Number one. And number two, you will have uh, an incredible awakened masses of people behind you. In spirit, and I think that that gives uh, gives the whistleblower power at this time that they, they never had before. It's a, it's an insurance policy to be able to come out publicly. And case in point, the swine flu. How many people believed that they needed to take the jab when it was obvious that it was? A, I don't even want to say it's conspiracy, but the pharmaceutical companies, and we don't want to get into this subject here. But now. They are countries that bought millions of doses of, uh, of the swine flu are trying to dump it and sell it. And it just goes to show you that people are <laughs> exactly. awakening. So I'm hoping that not only the swine flu is an example, but everything else that comes along. But I have some questions from the audience here. And this is, I think, for you, Carrie, given your knowledge and association with wing makers, what are your views regarding human DNA? And do you believe our DNA is changing as a result of cosmic radiation? If so, why? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and that's not just uh, from wingmakers, actually. That's, that's been substantiated by a number of, of witnesses out there, uh, one of whom is uh, Laura Knight Jedsick, who I will be interviewing in, um, hopefully interviewing. I'll certainly be meeting her in person in February. Um, and uh, her contacts, who are called the Cassiopeians, if you read those transcripts, you will see uh, there is information about the changing DNA there. Uh, another person is um, known as Ashayana Dean, uh, and she is also talking from her contacts and her information that she has gotten all about the changing DNA. But I think that this is out there in, in, in just a multiple of areas. Um, and I think that people are feeling it in and of themselves. There's no doubt about it that our planet is going through a major, major transition at this time. Uh, it is said to be the first time. In other words, we're not just repeating a cycle of cataclysm, contrary to what a lot of people tend to believe at this time, but that we are actually moving up. If you want to view, uh, sort of evolving as a spiral back to the, the source of, of all existence, then, then you would notice that we're moving up the spiral, not just in a circle, a never-ending circle, you know, that, that doesn't have um, a progress to it. And so I would say, yes, obviously we are, our DNA is changing. Um, I suppose scientists may eventually document that. Certainly the indigo children are indications of, uh, changing DNA on the planet for um, individuals incarnating. Um, I also believe that there are older indigos. I believe myself to be one, for example, um, and, and so on. So, yeah, absolutely. What are your views regarding, and this could be either of you, let's, let's have Bill. What are your views regarding the sun and the quote-unquote heart of the Milky Way, the galactic center? Are they portals into our other dimensions? Oh, I don't know if they're portals into other dimensions. I'm not... Um, I don't have a view on that. 
I do certainly feel, uh, as do many, many other people watching this very closely, that the sun is at the heart of some of the current problems, issues, and changing situations on this planet, with probably a lot more to come. And um, just as just as an example, not not even going to the more um, esoteric and interesting places to do with the possible um, uh, accelerated changes in DNA that may very well be the case. And David Wilcock makes some fascinating presentations on that subject. But simply connected with with practical issues that may affect us all on a day-to-day basis, we were contacted uh, about eight months ago by the wife of an electrical engineer in in England, somebody who is very senior working for the uh, for the British National Grid, as it's called, who said that he had just been told that he had about three years to prepare with a small team to find solutions for what would happen when every transformer in the grid was going to get burnt out. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I exchanged a few emails with her about this, and her husband was away. And all that she could say was that it had got something to do with electromagnetic clouds in space, but she didn't know the details because she wasn't a scientist. She would ask her husband as soon as he came home. He was due to come come home. I waited for the answer. And the next thing that happened was that all went quiet. Um, uh, And I'm sure that that exchange was valid. I'm sure that she was for real. And I'm sure that can be that the husband, uh, as soon as he discovered that that she was corresponding with us about this. She was told not to correspond with, with, with anybody at all because he was under his own orders about this. And there have been other leaks about this kind of thing, about the grid going down, about um, – we were told by somebody, for example, um, who's a name that you would instantly recognize and, and, and all of the listeners would recognize – and we don't have authority to to release the details of this because this was told to us very, very much off record. And he said that there would be um, uh, a um, that the powers that be were preparing for a major corona mass ejection. And at that time, I didn't really know what a corona mass ejection was. This all happened a couple of years ago. Um, there's much more discussion about this on the internet. And I said, well, can you tell us a little bit more about this? And he just said, he said, look up the event of 1859. And the event of 1859 was when there was a massive solar flare that caused auroral phenomena um, as far south or as far north as the equator, Mm -hmm. that if that had happened in today's electronic age, it would have wiped out just about everything. You would have had satellites and planes falling out of the sky. You would have had the internet brought down. You would have had the chips in your toaster and in your car all being fried, and it would have been a major, major problem. But because this was in the pre-electronic age, just people enjoyed wonderful sunsets and um, amazing auroral displays for a few days. But Somebody said that uh, on the air on the show, and I, I think I know who you're talking about, and I can say publicly because he told us publicly here, uh, Dr. Paul Aviolette, we had the, the privilege of well, you and I to interview him. We got disconnected 24 times. Every time we would touch a sensitive <laughs> subject, we would get That's disconnected. Me. But he was brave enough that every time I would call, he would continue with the show. So I want to say hello to Dr. Paul Aviolette over in, in Greece now. But he did say what you're saying, Bill, and... The fact that if a coronal mass ejection were to hit Earth again, 
it would take about 10 years before electricity can be reestablished. And people really don't think of not being able to turn on the switch or if the lights go out when there's a hurricane or a storm, you know, what, two, three days, maybe a week or two at the most. But imagine 10 years of, of not being able to have electricity. Is that can you speculate that this might be one of the reasons why the alleged underground bases are being built? Because what's going to happen is going to be hell on the surface of Earth. It could easily be that. And um, you're quite right. People don't really think too much about the degree to which we're, we're dependent on electricity. People think, oh, my lights are going to go out. Well, I can always light a candle. But then you don't have any electricity to um, to handle the gas pumps, so you don't have the trucks delivering the food to the supermarkets. You don't have the the water filtration systems working. I mean, you don't have anything. You don't have hospitals. You don't have any repairs happening. You don't have any infrastructure. And suddenly we're back to Victorian ages. But with but but we don't have horses. We don't have vegetable gardens. We don't have the community spirit that we had then. We're all on our own, and we're completely dependent upon this infrastructure, we're actually more helpless and more vulnerable now. And it's a paradox. We're more helpless and vulnerable now in our technological advancement than we ever were before. And so it only takes for one of these 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 sort of um, node points in the infrastructure to be pulled and then everything falls apart like a row of dominoes, mixing my metaphors there. And um, it could easily be that something like this is on the cards, and there may be very, very little that anyone can do about it. Incidentally, the person who spoke to us about this wasn't Dr. Paul Laviolette. We know oh. that um, we spoke to Paul ourselves, um, and uh, he has some very compelling um, theories about uh about galactic superwave phenomena. He's a highly intelligent man. He's an original thinker. And too few people have paid close attention to him. But actually, the person who spoke to us about this was somebody, and this really raised our own eyebrows at the time, was somebody who, although he was a brilliant scientist, and he wasn't Laviolette, but you could compare him to Laviolette and his brilliance. He's con he was under a top-secret contract working for the Department of... Um, uh, uh, Energy for the Department of Homeland Security. Oh, okay. He's working for the he's working for Homeland Security, and it's like you just have to ask yourself why why would a cutting edge black operations physicist be working under top secret contract for the Department of Homeland Security? And um, what he did in the end, he 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 ended this brief email correspondence with us saying that he apologized for being the bearer of bad news, saying that he couldn't say any more because he was under contract and saying that we were the first people who he corresponded with outside of the national security community for several years. And he said that we were going to be in for a very tough time. Now, this is another judgment call that we are faced with um, a lot of the time and which we get a lot of email correspondence about and you may even have some messages waiting from your listeners right now and that is that people say that we spread fear now would believe me we would love to give good news about absolutely everything but if there's something that feels like a wake-up call that we need to be relaying then it it's sort of we, we kind of feel that if this might be true 
then it's our responsibility to pass this information along. And the 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 way of looking at this, which which works well for me, comes straight from George Green, who we interviewed about 18 months ago. And he said, this is my paraphrase, he said, if you're a train if a train's coming down the track and your car is parked on the railroad track and you don't know about it, he said, he said, shame on me for not telling you and shame on you for not knowing. And, you know, the only purpose of this exercise is so that you can get your train off, you can get your car off the tracks. This is the idea. We're trying to make sure that everyone does the best they can in what might be challenging, changing times. But then we have but two, two people. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you have we have yeah, two yeah. people now. We have your source and we have Dr. Laviolette almost uh, talking from the same script as if they know. And there, are, yes, and there are others too. And it 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 suggests that there may be fire behind the smoke, so to speak. It suggests that there may be something that is that, that that might happen or will happen or could possibly happen or something like that and as you pointed out earlier the the american military and the military of many other first world countries as well hadn't spent literally trillions of dollars on excavating deep underground bases just for the fun of it they've done it because there's a good reason for this And it may be an insurance policy. It may be because there's a 1% chance of something bad happening. But with defensive military thinking, then um, they think, well, you know, it, it's our job to take care and to be defensive and to take precautions and to safeguard the future of the human race and all that kind of stuff. Or it may be a near inevitability because we're talking about these cyclic phenomena that seem to happen around about every um, 11,500 years If you spoke to Cliff High a, uh, uh, a few days ago, he, I believe, was echoing what Patrick Gerald says. And Patrick Gerald is convinced that it's all over and he might as well just party because there's no hope in, 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 in you know, no hope for the human race. Well, conversely, why would you think that the, the powers that be want to, for example, we, we can speculate of the fluoride in the water, the swine flu, to thin the herd. Why would they go through all this effort to thin the herd, to reduce the, the global population, if indeed, say, by 2012, we're going to be fried? That's a I good think, question. I think that's a go great ahead. question. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
and you are listening to a wonderful radio interview conducted by Mel. Mm-hmm. 